Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 44 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday, the 1st of December. And Leon, this week we're talking with Jamie Turin. That's right. Uh, we're talking to Jamie Turin about the company that he, uh, well, it's his mother's company that he. It is she, indeed, yes. And, uh, but he is the international sales director for Slim Secrets, health which, food. which sells uh, health food, yes. Yeah, and very good. After that, we're going to learn what economists or less like thinks of the government's promise of tax cuts, what they might produce. That's right. And uh, he, he has certainly views about what that does to the budget deficit and whether it's possible. That's right. So let's listen to Jamie Turin and discover why he gave up a lucrative career with an international law firm and went into the health food business with his mum. Now, first of all, what made you leave a comfortable life as a lawyer with Baker McKenzie to go into the health food business? Uh, great, great, great question. Um, oh, I think for me, uh, the legal industry, I, work, I worked as a lawyer at Baker McKenzie both in Melbourne and Tokyo for just over four years. Um, had an amazing experience, had a great team. I was working in the property side of things. Um, you know, work, work was fantastic. Really, really, really enjoyed it all. You know, secure, secure job and, and, and whatnot. I think for me, I think probably the lack of the ability to have that, you know, entrepreneurial flair and the ability to be a little bit bit more, uh, you know, create, creative, um, to get out of the office, to be able to do things your own way, um, to be a little bit less reliant, you know, on, on, a, on a client um, and to be able to um, actually, you know, decide what, what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, and just, I guess, take a little bit more control over, over your profession, your career. And um, law, law was an amazing, amazing beginning for me. It was a great uh, stepping stone into, into into what I did next. I actually, I actually went from law into, into a retail operations role in, in, a, in a retail business first and it really helped move into that and then going into going into a health food business i think it's just an industry or an area I'm, i relate to a little bit a little bit more easily you can apply everything that i learned as a lawyer and in, and in retail operations in this business um and i think i think you know the ability to have the autonomy really in in, in, in a business that, I, that i'm passionate about was probably the main reason why i decided to leave a, you know a comfortable life as a lawyer where i'd probably be looking at a senior associate now and, and moving towards you know partnership in the next four or five years so look it was definitely a decision that I didn't take lightly it was one that I had to speak to a lot of different people about and it's something that I'm very very happy that I did do even though even though a lot of what I do still involves legal work but no very happy with the decision I made. Now I have to say I mean Slim Secrets is uh, in the health food business but there's a lot of other health food businesses around Uh, a lot of them are selling junk how does um, Slim Secrets differentiate itself? Yeah definitely again I think Slim Secrets was founded about 12, 12 years ago 2000 and it was actually one of the first brands in, in, in this category. At the time, it was more more in the brand name being Slim Seekers. I think the focus back then was a little bit more diet and weight focused. But our range of products are nutritionally balanced health snacks. I guess our, our, our main target market are probably females, 18 to about 35. But it's for those who are you know really looking for a healthier alternative to snacking, those that have busy lifestyles and are looking for a snack on the go, those that want a snack before and after gym. So it's not necessarily 
necessarily just those that are looking for, you know, weight loss products or products that are going to help them, you know, be, be slim as the, as the brand is called. But our range of products now have, have grown into protein bars. We've got cookies, puddings, shakes, protein balls. We're looking at a few different uh, product ideas at the moment as well. And I think I think the major differentiation from our brand to other brands is purely that on the market, we're not necessarily the highest protein or the lowest sugar or the lowest carbs, but as a nutritionally balanced snack that still tastes great and still tastes indulgent, that's 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 where we're at and that's how we've maintained, you know, ranging at, at Coles and Woolworths for the past nine or 10 years and have continued to grow our ranging in Australia and, and, and overseas. Uh, what's extraordinary is, I mean, it's a family business. It was set up by your mother and, uh, and now you're based locally, but you've gone global and you, you're now exporting yep. to countries around the world. How have you built it globally? Look, at start again, you, 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 t- you touch on on, on mum. Uh, she, 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 pretty early on, I think, on the back of on the back of Coles and Woolworths and some of the bigger supermarket chains taking the brand on board here, very quickly they generated interest overseas. And believe it or not, we've actually been exporting to to a country like China for about for about nine years or so now. The last eighteen months, it's really kicked off in the cross border e-commerce space. But but China, you know, a market that's fairly new to a lot of countries, kicked off about nine years ago. But gradually, from then from the outset, we were approached through you know through distributors around the world who had seen the brand locally or in a lot of cases, believe it or not, that Googled healthy snacking or snack brand Australia and happened to come across Slim Secrets because there wasn't really anything like it at the time. And from there, relationships evolved, emails were sent, site calls were set up or whatever it was back then. And it really kind of took off that way. And I guess the last 18 months or so, we've done a lot of done a lot of different things locally through, you know, brand ambassadors like world number one tennis player at the time, Angelique Kerber, and a few little bits and pieces like that, which really drew global interest for the brand and really started to help us be seen on a on a on a global scale um, and I think a, a lot a lot of it came came to us but a lot of it also required you know I've spent quite a bit of time traveling getting on the ground going to different markets meeting with different people getting consultants who actually have that experience on the ground in those markets because look my experience as a lawyer and my experience in business has helped but I, I, I don't underestimate that you know 20 years experience in a market or 10 years or 15 years in exports can really help our help our brand so you know, again, we've been very, very fortunate, but we've also aligned ourselves with the right people and the right distributors to help to help make it happen and to help grow the business at a, at a faster pace than what we could do on our own. Now, the the issue too is, of course, that you're dealing with different markets around the world, so you'd have to get used to that as well. Yeah, it's it's very challenging. Regulations from from importing and exporting from the customs regulations, so what can come in and what can come out, ingredients. Uh, legal, you know, legal, different legal requirements as, as well. Um, taxes that have been have changed, especially in China, over over the course of the last eighteen months. Uh, taste preferences as well. We've found different markets have different tastes, and we really need to remember that ultimately we are an Australian brand. This is this is our market. This is where we do our biggest business. This is where we need to focus predominantly on. This is why overseas countries want your product because you've done so well locally in Australia. So to have that local brand as well, you need to stick true to what you've done. But at the same time, we've realised that. A lot of our products don't necessarily work in, in other markets or the ones that work well here don't work there and the ones that don't work as well here work over there. So look, every market is different. Every market's a challenge. We're learning every day. And as I said, it's something that we'll continue to, to keep learning. And, and again, if, as long as we have the right people helping us out, I think, I think we'll continue to grow and we'll, be, and we'll be fine. Now, what are your 
tips for breaking into the China market. What advice would you give people here? Look, there's, 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 lots, of, there's lots of tips I would give. There's probably two, two ma- major bits of advice that I have, and, and they've come up in, in every, from, from when I started until, until, until today. And, all, and again, it's the same learnings that I've had. I think number one would be you really need to take off your Australia hat when you're doing business in China. What you know here and how you do business here really doesn't apply uh, overseas in, in China. It is a completely different way of doing business from uh, just everything. So you really need to, to be open-minded and, and, and to be less rigid and to be willing to adapt. And the second bit of advice is there really is probably three steps to go to China. One is you need to have a successful brand locally. You really need to build your brand here in Australia before you can go into China. Number two is you really need to build a strong, successful brand targeted towards the local Chinese community here in Australia, so towards the Daegu community. And then once you've done that, you can you can focus on going into the China market. You certainly can't go to step three without moving through steps one and two first. Would you have uh, people... Uh, from the Chinese community here in Australia buying your product? Yeah, I mean, that for, for us, for us, we do, we do, we're doing a lot at the moment to really target the Chinese community here. I think one of the, one of the major things that we've done over the course of the last 10 years, which it wasn't necessarily for the China market, but it certainly helped the local Chinese community, is having your products in, in Coles, Woolworths, Chemist Warehouse, Priceline. We were on Tiger Airways for several years. We're at the airports, Newslinks, WH Smith, universities, all the touch points for the Chinese community, having, you know, Hurstville in Sydney and Box Hill in Victoria, places like that. So in that sense, we've always done it. But at the moment, yeah, we've got a real, real big focus on marketing towards the local Chinese community and ensuring that we have our products in, in local Chinese gift shops in Victoria, New South Wales, and, and hopefully, you know, even even further across the country. So it is a big focus at the moment. Because it's a, it's a massive growth market, isn't it? It is. It's a massive growth market here, and it's also a much lower cost entry into China. To, you can we, we, We've spent already quite a bit of money on building our brand awareness and building our category in China. And what we found is it's, it's a bottomless pit. You can, keep, you can keep spending money over there and very, very difficult to measure the success of it. But if you focus locally, it's a much lower cost and, and, and it's, it's a much easier way to market your brand. And ultimately, those in China who, who are looking for Australian brands more often than not have friends, family, contacts in Australia who they'll reach out to and ask, have you heard of the brand? Have you tried the brand? Have you seen the brand? So you really do need to ensure that the local Chinese community do know your brand and have tried it and tasted it. And yeah, it's, it's very, very important. And finally, what are your tips for building up a successful e-commerce business? As in an e-commerce business locally or, 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 or globally? Globally. 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 I mean, we have found that you really, each, each, of our, each of our e-commerce businesses in different markets are very, very separate. As I said, back to the point of having a different hat in different markets, we've found that we really need to make sure the way that we market the brand, especially online, where we don't necessarily have the ability to, to tell the full story or to sit here and have a conversation and explain the messaging of the brand or have an eight-year history. You've got an e-commerce site and you really need to very cleverly and succinctly communicate to the consumer about what your brand is and what the messaging is and really appeal to whatever it is that resonates with that customer in that market. And you know, back to China, for example, we found that we find in Australia, it's a lot more about the functional benefits. So when you market your brand online, it's really talking about the protein and the fiber and the carbohydrates. But in a market like China, for example, it's a lot more about the emotive benefits. So how it makes them feel and their weights and their skin, all, all the other parts that, that resonate with them. So again, you have a very short opportunity to, to appeal to someone on, online via an e-commerce site. And you just need to make sure it's very specific specific to that market and it resonates with the customer over there. Jamie Turin, thank you very much for your time. It's terrific talk to you. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Very much appreciate it. Well, it was fascinating stuff, Leon. Absolutely. And now the wisdom of Saul S. Lake and the tax cuts. Saul S. Lake, Malcolm Turnbull has flagged tax cuts. Uh, it's going to do nothing for the budget deficit. I mean, what's your view about that? 
Well, it's not surprising that Mr. Turnbull and Mr. Morrison would be foreshadowing the possibility of income tax cuts ahead of the next election, because on current forecasts, personal income tax collections are forecast to rise by some 60 billion dollars between the financial year that's just ended and the 21 financial year. The pro- and, and that will, at face value, mean a significant number of middle income earners paying noticeably more tax out of their incomes over that period, something which many of them will, I dare say, resent. So Mr. Turnbull undoubtedly feels that offering them some relief from that perspective, increase in their income tax burden would be helpful to his prospects at the next election whenever that might be held. However, there is a dilemma facing him because that forecast in increase in personal income tax collections accounts for most of if not nearly all of the movement back to surplus by 2021, which has long been one of the major economic goals of the present government. And that forecast is in turn dependent on wages growth returning from less than 2% over the past year to between 3 and 3.5% over most of the period between now and the early 2020s. So at face value, it would seem the government has a difficult choice in delivering these tax cuts. If nothing else changes from the forecasts set out in the most recent federal budget, then the government almost has to choose between giving significant and meaningful tax cuts or abandoning the promise to return the budget to surplus. It would seem the only way out of that dilemma would be for the government perhaps to forego the tax cuts for companies with turnover in excess of $50 million per annum that are currently baked into the 10-year budget forecasts, but which thus far the government's been unable to get through the Senate. The government, though, say it's committed to delivering those tax cuts to business and that they can do both. Well, I think it will be difficult to do both without abandoning the long-held objective of returning the budget to surplus. Certainly, it's hard to see how they could fund personal income tax cuts by uh, further cuts in government spending, given the Abbott government's inability to get much of that through the parliament when it was in charge, and the Turnbull government's, I think, pragmatic decision to abandon many of the so-called zombie measures that were still left over from that exercise. Of course, Treasurer Morrison does say that the budget figuring for 10 years out to 27-28 incorporates an assumption that revenue is capped at 23.9% of GDP. We don't know what revenue would have been in the absence of that assumption, and perhaps there is some scope for personal income tax cuts beyond about 2022-23 buried in that assumption, although that assumption, of course, also includes the cost of the tax cuts for big companies that the government says are fully funded uh, up to a cost of, I think the most recent estimate was in excess of $50 billion over the full 10-year projection period. So I'm not sure that the government can say that personal income tax are there for the taking without compromising its other objectives. My own view is that the government really does need to consider whether persisting with the company income tax cuts represents good policy. I've got significant doubts myself whether it will lead to any material increase in business investment, employment, 
or real wages. Most of the benefits will go to foreign shareholders and there's no guarantee or, or to foreign companies. And there's no guarantee that that will be returned in effect to Australia through higher levels of investment. If the government does seriously want to reduce company tax in line with the prospective reductions in company tax that are now being talked about in the United States, then I think they have to seriously consider paying for that by eliminating dividend imputation, which would leave the bottom line roughly unchanged and allow the company tax rate to be reduced perhaps to less than the 25% which the government promises. But that would obviously entail serious consideration of the effects of that on superannuation funds and others who do benefit from the existing dividend franking system. And of course, getting rid of dividend imputation would be politically difficult because it would penalise shareholders, wouldn't it? Well, it would, although in the first instance, the impact of lower dividend imputation would be felt by institutional shareholders. And obviously, while they manage money on behalf of their clients, members of the superannuation funds and so forth, it's not clear what the political impact of that would be. Um, Australia has had dividend imputation now for almost 30 years. And while the system has certainly brought some benefits to Australia, it is interesting Interesting that nobody else in the world apart from New Zealand has copied it. And one other country which did have something broadly similar to dividend imputation, the UK, abandoned it more than a decade ago. And when you are doing something very different from other countries otherwise similar to you, and they don't seem minded to copy what you've done, you do have to ask yourself, I think, whether they're right and we're wrong, uh, or the other way around. And the fact that nobody else has copied our system does raise questions about whether combining what the government says is a, now a very high rate of company tax with this unique cent, uh, system of dividend imputation is necessarily in Australia's best economic interests. The government says that if they don't bring in company tax, Australia will lose investment. Yes, they say that. I'm not sure that that case is unambiguously proven. And simple comparisons of the headline rate of tax without taking account of things like depreciation provisions and other ways that companies end up paying less than the statutory rate of tax or without considering the impact of dividend imputation are, I think, to some extent, missing the real point. The US Congressional Budget Office, the equivalent of our parliamentary budget office, earlier this year published a study of corporate tax rates across developed countries, and they found that when a county is taken of things like depreciation provisions and investment allowances, Australia's effective company tax rate was actually about the fifth lowest of the 20 countries that they analysed. So it's not it's not clear to me, it's not unambiguous, that Australia desperately needs to reduce its company income tax in order to attract continued flows of foreign investment. Indeed, I'd note we've had very high levels of foreign direct investment in Australia over the last decade or so, despite ostensibly having a relatively high company tax rate. Uh, so I don't think the evidence is compelling, even though there's a theoretical argument that Cutting Australia's company tax rate is something we have to do in order to sustain acceptable rates of economic growth. Mind you, I'd also say there's absolutely zero evidence to suggest that preferentially taxing small businesses as 
is now the case in Australia with support of all three political parties produces any benefits in terms of jobs, growth or innovation either. In fact, the evidence says the opposite, despite commonly made claims about small businesses being the engine room of the economy, the reality is that small businesses have created less than 5% of the increase in employment in Australia over the last five years, that they're less likely to engage in any form of business innovation than larger businesses. And I think the preference that the tax system now gives to small business is more a reflection of how pervasive the idea that there's something inherently more noble about running a small business than there is about running or working for a big business has uh, permeated the Australian political psyche. My view is that if you do want to use the company tax system, or for that matter, the payroll tax system, in order to encourage employment or innovation, then the right way to do that, the most effective way to do that, would be to give tax breaks for new companies because there is evidence that new companies are more likely to create employment, more likely to undertake business investment and more likely to engage in various forms of innovation than older, long-established companies. Uh, two additional advantages of preferentially treating new companies rather than small ones are that there's a lot less, a lot fewer new companies, so tax breaks for them don't cost as much. And the second thing is there is no perverse incentive problem arising from the fact that when you have a threshold based on size, as we now do for company tax and as state governments do for payroll tax, small businesses often forego opportunities to expand because they don't want to move into the higher tax bracket, whereas nothing there's nothing that a new, relatively new company can do as it continues to exist to stop it eventually becoming not a new company. And uh, for that reason, I think it's also more sensible to think about tax breaks for new companies rather than tax breaks for small ones if we're going to use the tax system as a way of promoting growth or innovation. Saul, I think that's fascinating stuff and important. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for talking to me again and best wishes for Christmas and the new year. So what do you think, Leon? Well, I think that's really problematic. He sums it up very clearly that uh, you can kiss goodbye to any prospect of getting a budget surplus and uh, it's it's just not possible. The sort of knee-jerk reaction of, oh, the public needs you know, boosting, we need boosting, and think of something. That's right. And as he says, there's no evidence that tax cuts will do anything, no, or no. company tax cuts anyway. No, well, that's right. Are they going to invest? No, probably not. That's right. And so now the news. Well, Gary, the British pound has spiked higher after the Telegraph reported the European Union and the United Kingdom had reached a deal on the so-called Brexit divorce bill. The Telegraph reported that sources from both sides had reached an Agreement in principle over the EU's demand for a 60 billion euro, that's 105.5 billion Aussie, financial settlement ahead of a crucial meeting next Monday between British Prime Minister Theresa May and Jean-Claude Juncker, the European Commission President. Pound's trajectory was volatile. Reuters reported a British government official saying they didn't recognise the Telegraph's account. However, it rose again after the Financial Times confirmed the Telegraph report, saying the UK would assume EU liabilities worth up to 100 billion and that would be discharged over many decades. Bloomberg reported European officials anonymously telling the news agency that while an agreement on 
the bill hasn't yet been sealed. They said discussions are going in the right direction. Now, of course, intensive negotiations continue so that the UK and EU can declare there's been sufficient progress next week. And the reported breakthrough is critical because negotiations haven't even started on the crucial terms of trade that will apply once Britain leaves in just 16 months' time. And of course, once a divorce bill is settled, the parties will need to negotiate the complex issue of the Irish border. Yeah, and that's going to be a bit tender. And uh, meantime, we've got uh, the alimony payments, you might call, in the divorce. That's right. How much they're going to pay How- and when they're going to pay. When they're going to pay. And obviously, from the account and financial times, it seems it's going to be discharged over many decades. Yeah, I think the Brits will make a string out as long as they can. That's right. Now, the euphoria around Bitcoin has sent the cryptocurrency. It's actually now surged past 11 thousand dollars one bitcoin one bitcoin and according to the coin market cap website bitcoin has risen 1500 percent this year reaching a market capitalization of more than 290 billion and after the past two weeks it's climbed by 45 percent and that's despite warnings that it's an asset bubble and everyone from wall street executives to venture capitalists have been weighing in with their forecasts some are skeptical some are tipping bitcoin will go to the moon now what's going to really take it further is that CME Group says it's planned to start offering futures contracts for Bitcoin which could begin trading in December and that could push it even further into mainstream investing and increase the value even further. And I'm haunted by the 17th century Dutch tulip fiasco. That's right, that's right. And uh, this morning a guy called Dudley from the Federal Reserve was talking about the US Federal Reserve dealing in Bitcoin which is a signal that what all other central banks might do. I think Mr Powell might put a a strap on that one. Well, indeed. And uh, the incoming chair of the US Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, has told the Senate Banking Committee at his confirmation hearing that the case for a December rate hike is strengthening. His words were, I think the case for raising interest rates at our next meeting is coming together. He said, however, he couldn't guarantee he'd vote for a rate increase without hearing the views of his colleagues on the Federal Open Markets Committee. Mr. Powell, who served as a Fed governor since 2012, was chosen by US President Donald Trump to replace Janet Yellen as the next chair of the US Federal Reserve and Powell was put through two hours of questioning but there was no sign he won't be confirmed and futures markets are priced in a 93% probability of a December rate hike. Well that's going to affect us too. Yes. Now Australian consumer confidence edged down 1.2% to 115 according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index despite the falls or some promising signs in the figures. Households views towards both current and future economic conditions slipped 3.4% 3.3% respectively last week after two weeks of gain. However, people's feelings about current economic conditions remain above their long-term average. And while households' views towards the state of their current finances slipped for the fourth consecutive week by 2.3%, current conditions remain above their long-term average. At the same time, views towards future conditions rose 1.6% last week, following the previous week's 3% rise. Yeah, Parliament's failure to look like any kind of coherent assembly doesn't help any of that scene either. In fact, I'm reminded of Lewis Carroll's Tweedledum and Tweedledee, who went to battle for much the same sort of illogical reason well exactly and uh we've got something and of course now the pressure is on for a case for an inquiry into the banks it's gaining momentum after a lower another lower house mp signaled he was on board nationals mp lou o'brien who replaced warren truss in the seat of wide bay at the last election has told his colleagues he's prepared to cross the floor and support the private members bill put out by senator barry o'sullivan and queensland nationals mp george christensen who blamed the strong one nation vote in his seat of dawson at saturday's state election 
in Queensland on Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is a strong support of the bill. Christensen launched a website, www.bankinginquiry.com.au, check it out, with a petition for people to sign backing a Royal Commission. A private member's bill, which would be co-sponsored by Labor, the Greens, One Nation, Bob Catter and other crossbenchers, proposes a wide-ranging inquiry into banking, insurance and super. And the bill would have the numbers to pass the Senate and would have to be debated in the lower house where it would need 76 votes. Now, Labor and the crossbenchers have 74 votes. A bill in the lower house would be problematic for the government with Barnaby Joyce and John Alexander fighting by-elections and absent next week when the House seats for the final week of the year. And the absence leaves the coalition with a maximum 73 votes to Labor and crossbenchers 74. And coalition members uh, have held the line against the Royal Commission and Malcolm, Malcolm Turnbull says there's no connection between the banking inquiry and the disappointing election result in Queensland. And all of this is going to cause uh, further disunity in the coalition. Totally. Totally. And that's going to be an absolute disaster. It's an absolute disaster. Yeah, there's a lot of it's due to uh, the Nationals being worried about Pauline Hanson in the federal election. And uh, Indeed. And another talking about another disaster, we've got the MBN. Hundreds of thousands of Australians could be forced to wait for several months before they're connected to high-speed broadband via the old pay TV network after MBN halted the rollout of its hyper- fibre coaxial, that's HFC, network because of issues about reliability. MBN says nearly 1 million premises are ready to connect. 370,000 have done so already. It says there would be delay in its current rollout of new HFC errors while it undertook work in its existing footprint and in those areas not yet ready for service. And all of this is because of the reliability of it. And MBN Chief Executive Bill Morrow said the initiatives aim to improve the quality of the service for end users. It's interesting that uh, they didn't pick up the Optus uh hybrid fibre cable because of its unreliability. That's right. Now, of course, that has implications for Telstra because that's going to impact on its earnings. Um, and Telstra Chief Executive Andy Benn, though, has backed MBN's decision to halt the rollout of its HFC network, deploying broadband over pay TV cables. Speaking at an American Chamber of Commerce lunch on Tuesday, Mr Penn said accelerating the rollout should not come at the expense of customers. Now, of course, the delay will have an impact on Telstra's earnings. Telstra receives $1,300 for each HFC cable connection that switched from its network to the MBM and that delay will put that money back into later financial years. Analysts estimate that could put $340 million of Telstra's pre-tax earnings at risk and force it into a rethink of its dividend policy. Mr Penn, however, applauded MBN's decision saying MBN was addressing a significant customer issue. He said Telstra was working through the financial implications of the MBN decision and would update investors in the coming days. And the, this MBN decision is already having an impact on Telstra's shares this week, Gary. Yeah, that's right. And while Mr. Penn expected many of Telstra's customers will switch over to mobile from fixed broadband services when its 5G network is launched, he said this will not supersede the MBM. He said cost constraints would prevent 5G from achieving the same level of capacity as a fixed line network. He also noted that while wholesale that wholesale broadband prices in Australia from MBN are increasing by almost 100, 100% in the migration because of the significant cost of the rollout, and these costs are expected to increase by further 20 to 25% over the next three to four years. And Gary, I think that's going to put more pressure on the federal government. I'm sure it will. I mean, this is a you know, real vulture on the roof, this lot. That's right. Now, 
Corporate news and Downer has upgraded its full-year cost guidance after identifying savings in its acquisition of 87.8% of Spotless. Downer said cost synergies were expected to exceed its original expense with around $25 million identified as annualised procurement savings alone. And as a result, Downer has upgraded its net profit guidance to $195 million from April's $190 million. The Spotless profit is expected to be at the bottom end of the previously issued $85 million to $100 million guidance after deciding to record almost $80 million in costs and impact. Impairments. And BHP Billiton is expected to lower its costs by 10% across its mining operations. And it's looking at saving uh, US $1.6 billion, or that's Aussie $2.2 billion, in productivity gains over the next two years. And BHP Minerals President Mike Henry told an investment briefing in Adelaide that the world's biggest miner had already reduced costs over the last five years, but had further to go. Initiatives to improve its bottom line, including strengthening BHP's maintenance capability and processes, and through a global technology push. And automation. Never forget automation. That's right. And Mr. Henry said BHP Billiton had medium-term investment opportunities that, if approved, would generate average returns that could exceed 40%, which meant, he said, they were well-placed to compete for capital within the company. And BHP Billiton's also foreshadowed steel and raw material prices rebounding sharply before February. So the outlook's pretty good there. I think so. And finally, Gary, Murray Goldburn, which last month decided to sell its assets and liabilities to Canadian dairy giant Saputo, has offloaded a milk factory in Tasmania's northwest that it was already being closed down. It sold it to a Thai company. Murray Goulburn announced it's selling its Edith Creek facility in Tasmania's Dutch Mill, Australia, a local subsidiary of Dutch Mill Group of Thailand for an undisclosed price. The sale includes the Edith Creek land and all assets associated with the site. The site's already scheduled for closure on November 30. It employs 120 people. 80 have remained there while it winds down. So in, a, in effect, Dutch Mill wants to reopen it so Dutch Mill is going to give those workers a lifeline. And that's pretty good. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're talking to Adam O'Neill from Wysoft. Yeah, no, that should be very interesting. That's right. And that's it for us this week. You can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.